You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, recording from Washington, D.C., Ankit Panda. I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, and I am still in Hawaii. Still very jealous, Katie, um, but uh, <laughs> I hope you're uh, enjoying your time uh, out in the middle of the Pacific. How's it going so far? No, it's it's beautiful as always. It's a wonderful place. Well, um, I think that, you know, sets us up pretty nicely to, uh, you know, talk about the view from Washington to the Pacific, quite literally, uh, as we turn this week, as I indicated in our last episode, to talk a little bit more in detail about the Biden administration's newly released uh, Indo-Pacific strategy um, report. And so I think the place to maybe start is to just, first of all, explain, you know, why American administrations bothering releasing, you know, bother releasing these kinds of documents, right? A, a strategy document, I mean, obviously, it's great fodder for analysts and podcasters like us to spend lots of time talking about these things. But more broadly, it's a way to sort of signal um, one's um, strategic thinking, right? If a strategy is understood as matching sort of limited means to finite ends, uh, then it, it, you know, it is worth new administrations um, basically setting out what the ends that they seek to accomplish are and what the means by which they expect to accomplish those means are. And so uh, the Biden administration has tried to do this uh, in its 19 page uh, Indo-Pacific strategy document. And so, Katie, I was thinking today we just um, maybe share a few impressions, first of all, at a very high level. Um, and then I sort of wanted to kind of go through the document a little bit, uh, you know, not in tremendous detail, but to sort of, you know, give our listeners who maybe don't have the time to read the entire thing. Uh, sort of a read-along, uh, so to speak. So um, if that sounds good to you, I was maybe going to turn it over to you to maybe kick us off with what you sort of took away uh, at the highest level from this Indo-Pacific strategy. Absolutely. That sounds like a great plan and I think very useful. Um, so the the thing that jumped out of jumped out at me most prominently is the focus throughout the strategy on allies and partners. Um, and it, you know, it mentions these in kind of three different groups. I would say you've got your treaty allies. Uh, the United States has a number of those in Asia, um, sort of partners that are not treaty allies, but are in that same universe of partners. And then uh, organizations like ASEAN, um, the Pacific Islands PIF. Oh, I just blanked on the name of it. Pacific Islands Forum. Pacific Islands Forum. Forum's the word. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, my apologies to the Pacific. Um, but it, even that earns a mention in this, which I think is different from maybe past uh, documents. And so that focus on allies and partners kind of, I think, sets up the rest of the document as kind of a, a network strategy. You know, it's not that the United States is going to do all of these things on its own. It's sort of, we want to do these things and we want all of these partners to assist us in this. I mean, even NATO gets a mention. There's, I think, an interesting discussion to be had about, um, you know, there's, France gets a shout out. Uh, there's a, a focus on bringing in the United States' allies and partners from around the world into Asia with the backing that Asia is extremely important to the rest of the world and extremely important to U.S. Um, goals in the rest of the world. And so I think that's kind of an interesting way to avoid the abandoning Europe to focus on Asia angle by saying, like, Europe, come along with us to Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I'm curious what uh, what top line things you uh, pulled out of this document. Well, so, you know, I'm going to I'm going to share a few thoughts on the China piece of this, which I thought was really interesting and actually a pretty important contrast with the Trump administration. I think, you know, there's been sort of this um, genre of analysis that the Biden folks have really just picked up on the Trump administration's China policy 
Uh, but I think we actually see in the Indo-Pacific strategy that um, there's a pretty important difference in how they're thinking about this. But before I get to that, Katie, I mean, let me just, you know, briefly just um, expand on, 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 on what you've said. I mean, I think the folks writing this document, I mean, first of all, I think there's a serious interest in the Biden administration to really, really indicate that the America first era is over, uh, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Biden campaigned on this. He, he emphasized that he would rebuild alliances and partnerships if he was elected. And so I think the emphasis throughout, which I completely agree with you on on allies and partners, is just incredibly stark, um, is, is an attempt to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there's also an element of continuity with sort of, uh, you know, where the Obama administration left off in 2016. Uh, I think a lot of the language on networking between alliances and partnerships, pursuing trilateralism with Japan and South Korea, uh, you know, we could even relate that back to uh, the older 2016 era concept that the Ash Carter Pentagon was quite big on of a principled security network uh, in Asia. Mm -hmm. This was sort of, you know, this predates the Indo-Pacific. But I think, um, you know, that concept, I think really, uh, at least the DNA of that, um, of the intellectual heritage there, I think really sort of comes through to me in this document. Um, but let me just, you know, shift gears now to China. So, look, I think I think one of the, the tensions and frustrations that... Um, some folks, especially in Asia, had with the Trump administration's approach uh, to the Indo-Pacific was that, you know, did the Trump administration have an Indo-Pacific strategy for China or did the administration really have a China strategy for the Indo-Pacific? Right. And I think those things mm -hmm. are not exactly the same thing. Um, and, you know, I think th the sense was with all of the emphasis on great power competition and, um, you know, critiquing the Chinese Communist Party versus talking about the PRC's external behavior uh, and and really framing a lot of what the administration was doing in the Indo-Pacific in terms of China. Um, smaller countries, middle powers, uh, organizations like ASEAN were sort of seen as as a sideshow. And I think the Biden administration sort of tried to flip that um, and, and really come up with an Indo-Pacific strategy for China, uh, which which I think uh, really kind of comes through in this document. Um, that said, um, you know, China is, I think, at the center of this strategy in many ways. I mean, in the executive summary section at the start of this document on the Indo-Pacific's promise, um, there's two pretty long paragraphs dedicated to all the bad things that China is doing. Uh, the administration offers its theory of why China is problematic, which is that China is basically using all means of national powers to pursue, quote, a sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and seeks to become the world's most influential power. So there's there's a clear theory here. China's trying to become a hegemon in ways that are detrimental to American interests and peace and security in the Indo-Pacific. So we're going to try to prevent that. But the the fact that the Chinese Communist Party isn't mentioned in the document, I think, is 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 pretty important to flag. Right. Because I think the Trump administration um was approaching competition with China with a more expansive lens where they were critiquing the CCP, critiquing Chinese internal practices in a way that to Chinese leaders implied potentially that the United States would not simply stop at trying to constrain China's behavior in the Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, the Western Pacific, and so forth, um, but actually that the U.S. might want to change China internally. Uh, and to Chinese mm -hmm. leaders, that concern is existential. It, you know, it amounts to sort of regime change language, uh, I think, and, um, in, in sort of the worst manifestation of that. And so looking at the Biden document, uh, it, it's pretty interesting to see, like, literally explicitly, uh, you know, about the quote from the document that they say, our objective is not to change the PRC, but to shape the strategic environment in which it operates. And so that's, I think, the clearest kind of statement um, in my mind that this administration is coming at the Indo-Pacific more from the perspective of 
um, you know, coming up with an Indo-Pacific strategy for China, that how how is this region going to um, evolve and what can the United States do to sort of steer this region in a way that's going to make it more difficult for China to accomplish its objectives. And so, you know, the, uh, the administration has a separate China strategy, and, and, and that's a much more sort of global approach with sort of um, facets ranging from Latin America to Europe to Africa, uh, all around the world. And so, you know, that that really um, jumped out to me. Um, and I think without sort of de-emphasizing the CCP, I think the administration would sort of have a very difficult time basically saying that they're going to engage in, quote, responsible competition with China, uh, which has been sort of mm-hmm. the theme since late 2021 when Biden met Xi and the and the two of them talked about guardrails to preventing conflict. So uh, that that really uh, um, jumped out to me. I don't know if um, you know you had a similar uh, set of impressions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the document makes clear that China is a challenge in the Pacific. Um, that doesn't make it the only challenge. And so I think it and we'll, we'll get into this more as we go through the document. It didn't want I, 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 it was pretty clear to me that they didn't want this document to just be about China, because while China is obviously a massive issue in the Pacific, it is far from the only issue that the countries of the Pacific care about. And so I think by saying like, yes, it's it's a, it's a yes and yes and climate change and development and some of these other uh, issues that we'll get into. Um, and so I think that's obviously an important facet. And I'm glad that you picked up on that one. Mm-hmm. So let's maybe start kind of going through this. Um, so, you know, ahead of this discussion, I sort of went through and marked up this document. We're obviously not going to have time to go through the entire thing, but I thought, you know, I could maybe flag a couple things and you could do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, actually, I've been going back to the piece on um, allies and partners. Uh, there's this really interesting section at the start of um, the the second section of the document where the drafters really point out where the U.S. overlaps with specific allies and partners. So, you know, they say, like mm-hmm. Japan, we believe in X. Like India, we want this. Like Australia, we want this. Like South Korea, we want this. Like ASEAN, we want this. So there's this real emphasis on pointing out that, you know, these interests are shared. It's not sort of the U.S. imposing a certain vision on, Indo- um, on the Indo-Pacific, two countries in the region. Uh, and even when they address, you know, the United Kingdom, France, the European Union, it's sort of a very similar approach. So, uh, you know, I thought I thought that was pretty interesting. Um Going down, Katie, uh, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, including on the last episode. Um, I'm wondering what you made of the language on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, which is something that is, you know, part of the action plan. It hasn't yet been released. It's it's very much anticipated. This has been sort of a a chronic sort of criticism that the Trump administration and the Biden administration have received, which is that the U.S. is sort of um, hopping on one leg in the Indo-Pacific, primarily relying on... um, you know, diplomacy and military capabilities, but less on sort of meeting the economic demand signals from the region. So um, what was your sense on how the uh, how the strategy document addresses this? Yeah, I mean, the, the economic piece is certainly a big complaint that I've heard from from a lot of people who have comments. <laughs> um, and it, it mentions an economic framework that is TBD. Um, and, and, you know, in doing that kind of throws out the grab bag of, of possible, you know, technological transformation, digital economy, energy, climate, um, sort of all, all of these things are ostensibly part of that discussion. Um, further down in the document, when it gets into sort of the 
action plan items. Um, leading on an Indo-Pacific economic framework is one of those action items. So mm -hmm. that's something that we as observers um, should be watching the administration for in the next, they say, 24 or 12 to 24 months. So the next two years is the plan to have something like this. Um, they say, you know, we're going to launch this in early 2022. They refer to it as a new partnership. So uh, I imagine we need to start looking for meetings regarding this partnership and who's going to be involved. I do think, not that I was expecting anybody to kind of bring up um, the T uh, TPP, but you know how uh, how this new economic framework will fit in with existing economic frameworks that the United States had been a part of and pulled out of and doesn't seem to be um, re-entering. But maybe we're wrong. Um, I, I think that'll be an interesting thing to watch: is how whatever this proposed new architecture. Um, is how that interacts with existing. So CPTPP is what it's called now, um, plus uh, uh, RCEP. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we'll see how that kind of fits into existing architectures. Um, yeah. But there's there's not a lot of details in this document, nor clearly it's it's not that they, they don't have the details. They haven't had the discussions, I don't think. At least they have not ready to talk about them publicly. Yeah, I mean... Look, I mean, the Indo-Pacific, you know, I think I think they recognize the fact that everybody in the region wants to have the U.S. engaged economically. And so I think the absolutely. paragraph and the language is really just letting people hear the things they want to hear. Um, but you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, everything that the language on the economic partnership, uh, I mean, sorry, the economic framework in this document says the U.S. could really do by just signing up to the CPTPP tomorrow. Right. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think this is a particularly delicate or nuanced issue that if the U.S. really wanted to do a lot of this join the CPTPP. Of course, you know, here we get into the real problem uh, for this administration. And I think for, um, you know, um, I mean, folks involved in um, national security policymaking in the Indo-Pacific and uh, thinking more strategically about these issues is they have to contend with the reality that, you know, both major parties in the United States are uh, effectively out of the free trade business. It's not something the U.S. does anymore. It's not something that uh, an American president will be rewarded for at the polls, certainly. Uh, it's uh, Certainly Joe Biden doesn't have the political capital to gamble on joining CPTPP. So it's this sort of odd reality where, you know, you'll talk to folks in D.C. and they'll basically acknowledge that, yeah, it would be great if we were in TPP because TPP would have done all of these things that would have met many of these objectives we have. But we're not mm -hmm. going to do that because, uh, you know, can't convince the president that that's a good idea for domestic political Can the reasons. U.S. join TPP without joining TPP is kind of the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think it's 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 going to be difficult. I think I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of this framework when it comes out. I think it's going to be very heavy on like supply chains, 5G infrastructure, a lot of the non-trade mm -hmm. components. But, uh, you know, ultimately, I think it's it's still going to be. You know, one of the biggest questions, I think, is, you know, imagining the alternate reality where maybe the 2016 election goes differently and a President Hillary Clinton, you know, reneges on her campaign promise not to join the TPP, but actually does join the TPP. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it's, I think, going to be um, a, 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 you know, a pretty tricky issue for the administration to navigate, uh, at least uh, honestly. So I can see why the document says what it says. But I think, uh, you know, there's going to be a continuing skepticism about the economic piece of a lot of this. Yeah, and, and a, a slightly related economic issue is that a lot of the things mentioned in this document are going to require funding. I think there's something Prashanth men mentioned in our last podcast, and it, it it's not quite clear 
whether that'll just be money shifted from other programs or new or, or how all that's done. And a lot of that is also going to depend on uh, U.S. domestic policymaking and how budgets are made. But like people in the Pacific know that if you want to do all these things, it, it takes takes money. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, maybe kind of flipping things on um, on the head now and maybe moving away from economics to talk a little bit about deterrence. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as part of the action plan piece of the document, uh, so for our listeners who haven't seen the document, uh, it sort of culminates in this uh, Indo-Pacific action plan outlining sort of 10, um, basically 10 objectives that the administration is going to pursue over the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, and there's a piece in there on reinforcing deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, deterring military aggression, uh, aggression against the United States allies and partners, including in the Taiwan Strait. And so looking at that paragraph, uh, you know, there's a little bit in there on the Pacific Deterrence Initiative and the Maritime Security Initiative, which is to be expected, but that's just one sentence. And then the rest of it is really about AUKUS, uh, which mm -hmm. I, you know, found pretty interesting. And I, and I think it's illustrative of, you know, the extent to which I think AUKUS is going to be really, I think, a, a primary legacy issue of this administration in the Indo-Pacific. You know, I think, I think um, safe to say, regardless of whether Biden's one-term or two-term president, AUKUS uh, is, I think, at least right now, being seen as one of the things that will be this administration's major contribution um, to what the U.S. is seeking to do. So, uh, you know, I thought I thought that was pretty interesting, Katie. And I think maybe that also gets into what you brought up earlier about the um, emphasis more broadly on the Southern Pacific and the Pacific Islands. I mean, it's just, I think, mm -hmm. um, part of the Indo-Pacific that this administration is thinking about a little differently. I'm wondering if you want to expand a little bit on that, though. What really jumped out to you about um, the South Pacific focus? Yeah, so another one of those action items is partner to build resilience in the Pacific Islands. Um, and I found this particularly interesting because I, I work with a lot of our, our writers at The Diplomat who cover uh, the Pacific Islands in Australia. Um, and, you know, it is interesting how little the United States sometimes seems to get, engage in the Pacific itself. Uh, and so this, this focus, um, it's mentioned numerous times in the document, the United States will work to engage more diplomatically in the Pacific Islands. Uh, when Blinken was in Fiji, uh, it came out that the United States is going to reopen its embassy in the Solomon Islands, um, which closed in the mid 90s, uh, it was downgraded to a consulate. And so I think and it's mentioned other elsewhere in, in the document that there will be a focus on re on opening new embassies and consulates in Southeast Asia and in the Pacific, uh, specifically mm -hmm. Pacific specifically is really hard to say. <laughs> um, but, and, and I think that that is, um, it, I think that's really long overdue in, in one way, sort of re-engaging. If you think about it, um, the um, the U.S. Embassy in Fiji uh, serves Kiribati, Nauru, Tonga, and Tuvalu. The U.S. Embassy in Papua New Guinea serves not only Papua New Guinea, but Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. So there's a lot of these small island countries that just don't have a lot of U.S. diplomatic engagement. So I think watching for more of that will be interesting. Um, Obviously, the reasons behind that are kind of two-pronged. China is a very big one. Um, Solomon Islands recently, uh, I guess it was 2019, switched its diplomatic recognition from uh, Taiwan to uh, Beijing. And, and, and the other sort of major facet is uh, climate change. You know, these uh, Pacific Islands are sort of the most, um, the impacts of climate change are most readily apparent in Pacific Islands in terms of rising sea levels, increasing storm severity, um, while these countries also contribute negligible amounts to 
you know, the, the, the instigators of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so those are the kind of the two focuses when sort of, I'm going to say the word pivot, pivoting towards more focus on the Pacific Islands is addressing the China challenge, but also addressing climate change. Um, and then baked into that, um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on the compacts of free association negotiations, but those are uh, agreements that the United States has with uh, the Federated States of Micronesia, the Republic of Marshall Islands, and Palau um, that are sort of a closer relationship than we have with other Pacific Islands. And those are all the current agreements expire in 2023 and 2024. So, you know, those negotiations need to make progress or they're going to go away. Yeah. And I think and I think that was uh, on on the compacts of free association. That was something that the Trump administration began to pick up on uh, in late 2019 and, and uh, 2020 yeah. as well. So I think there's an element of, of slight continuity there. Um, so can we talk a little bit about Taiwan? Yes, we should talk about yeah. Taiwan. So Taiwan pops up a lot in this document. Yeah, it does, which is, you know, not particularly surprising. I actually so my my sense is that the document is actually fairly restrained on what it says about Taiwan. I mean, you know, Taiwan appears in the list of partners alongside, you know, India, Vietnam and so forth, uh, you know, sort of emphasizing the fact that Taiwan is not a, a formal treaty ally of the United States, although, you know, the U.S. Mm-hmm. has a, a primarily congressionally um, led relationship with Taiwan under the, the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, um, so, you know, last year there was, uh, I think, you know, some folks were surprised when um, I believe it was Eli Ratner, who's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Affairs at the Pentagon, uh, in testimony, uh, cited preventing the unification uh, of Taiwan with China as as a core U.S. strategic interest. And that traditionally mm-hmm. is not the way in which American officials talk about, um, you know, Taiwan policy. Our, our like a, a Taiwan policy in the United States is basically maintaining the cross-strait status quo. And but when we get to the Indo-Pacific strategy document, we very much see that sort of traditional framing um, of of Taiwan, uh, you know, maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait um, and supporting Taiwan's self-defense capabilities, uh, ensuring that an environment in which Taiwan's future is determined peacefully in accordance with the wishes and best interests of Taiwan's people. So the document does not rule out um, the prospect of, you know, a peaceful unification scenario, which traditionally mm-hmm. the U.S. has been willing to tolerate, although, you know, r- realistically um, that's not about to happen anytime soon. Uh, and then the document, again, you know, reiterates U.S. commitment to the One China Policy, uh, the Taiwan Relations Act, and the three uh, communiques and the six assurances, sort of the baseline for uh, American policy towards Taiwan. So I thought, I thought this was an interesting attempt to sort of ground American Taiwan policy um, in sort of a very traditional way, but also continue to emphasize that, you know, Taiwan is going to be a much bigger part of what the U.S. is looking to do um, and the fact that Taiwan is, uh, you know, I think going to be multilateralized, the U.S. is going to bring it up with all of its allies and partners as the Biden administration started doing last year. So that mm-hmm. I thought was, uh, again, you know, um, a pretty interesting uh, thing to see in this document. Yeah, so certainly Taiwan gets um, a number of I, I, I uh, just checked its eight references, most of them in that that paragraph that you just sort of cited that that lays out the baseline of, of really U.S. relations with, with Taiwan. Um, but you can kind of see how Taiwan in, in being listed as, you know, a leading regional partner of the United States is going to work with sandwiched between Singapore and Vietnam in the list. Um, you know, the United States certainly sees Taiwan's role in the rest of these other initiatives, um, which I think reflects interestingly about what has changed and what hasn't changed about that relationship. Right. So I think maybe, um, you know, to close out today's discussion, I think maybe the last thing to talk about is, um, 
architecture issues, uh, right? So the focus on ASEAN, uh, ASEAN centrality, emphasizing ASEAN's importance to the Indo-Pacific, you know, something that I think um, the Trump administration did, the Obama administration certainly did. Um, and I think we're seeing that again, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, the traditional approach to the pivot, for instance, in the Obama administration was, you know, the pivot was commonly described as a pivot to Southeast Asia. Uh, and I think in the context mm -hmm. of the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, some of that heritage, again, I think shines through with to talk about ASEAN. Um, the Quad is pretty interesting, right? Because, I mean, look, nobody's calling the Quad a quadrilateral security dialogue anymore. I was sort of trying to look at the last time the Biden administration used that <laughs> phrase, uh, which is what it was called when the Quad reconvened for the first time in 10 years in November 2017 under the Trump administration. Um, but now the Quad is, you know, pretty explicitly being sort of desecuritized, that the Quad is doing you know, vaccines, climate change, infrastructure, um, space, uh, and, uh, you know, setting up scholarships uh, and and um, and all these things that I think uh, this administration is really trying to emphasize has very little to do with security and defense. Um, we talked a little bit about AUKUS, so I'm not going to revisit that. But, you know, all of this, again, I think, it, you know, sort of maybe dovetails with what you highlighted at the onset, Katie, about the administration really trying to bring in um, all of these institutional arrangements uh, into into the Indo-Pacific uh, in, in a bigger way. I'm curious if anything else jumped out to you on the institutional piece. Yeah, no, you you pretty much co covered it. Um, you know, when you're going through the action items, uh, they, they hit on major um, sort of groupings that the United States can kind of tap into. So there's ASEAN is the obvious uh, obvious um, one and comes, I think, first in that list. And then the quad also, I, th I think that's a really astute observation that when you're reading the deliver on the quad uh, action item, security is not the theme, or at least traditional sort of security and defense is not the theme of that, you know, it talks more about global health security, uh, vaccine distribution, um, some some on technological issues, emerging tech, um, but then announces a quad fellowship for, you know, 100 students from the four quad countries to study STEM in the United States. So that's sort of a more of a, a human security approach, I thought. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that fits in well, because I I think the, I mean, the overarching conclusion is that there's a lot to do in the Pacific and a lot to get done. And the United States isn't going to be able to do all of that by itself. And so um, is hoping to kind of recruit, you know, as, as the saying goes, partners and allies uh, in, in those endeavors and in the, the overarching, um, you know, free and open Indo-Pacific concept. Um, and so, you know, whether these things get done and at the t at what time scale and you know whether congress funds the things that the administration wants to be funded are all open questions but there we, we now have sort of a strategy document on which we can kind of benchmark what the administration does going forward all right so i think we'll leave it there that's not every piece of this but uh you know i hope listeners found that useful as sort of a way to parse through uh, how the administration here is thinking about um the indo-pacific so Katie, I guess I'll let you get back uh, to the wonderful beaches of Hawaii. So thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you, as always. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be back soon with another episode, but um, probably when you're back in Washington. So uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be back in Washington. Unfortunately, I have to go home at some point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for joining me, Katie. Talk to you soon. For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can subscribe really anywhere you get your podcasts. We're pretty much available at most distribution outlets. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. Uh, that really helps get the word out about the show, and we do appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.